Good morning again and welcome. It is our privilege once again to look this morning at Paul's letter to the Romans, a series which we started a couple months, maybe three months back, to spend some time thinking about this epistle that the German reformer Martin Luther once referred to as the greatest and clearest gospel of them all. Uh, in other words, as, uh, and as uh, Sinclair Ferguson points out, even compared to the actual gospels, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Luther's opinion, it is the book of Romans primarily that helps you put all of the pieces together, that causes the four Gospels to come alive with meaning and significance, and in a way they never would have if Romans had never been written. I think there is something to that. So picking up where we left off last week, we're going to begin this morning with Romans 2 verse 1, and work our way through to verse 4. And as we look at this, we're going to try to answer three sort of basic questions. Uh, The first one is, what is Paul doing? Not what is Paul saying, but what is Paul doing? What is he trying to accomplish specifically here in this section? And secondly, and kind of tied with that first question, is the follow-on question, who is Paul addressing here? Uh, Who who is he addressing? Who does Paul have in mind as he starts out here in chapter 2 of Romans? Who is he thinking about? And finally, that last question, what are the the most significant things being said to that particular subset of its readers at this point in Paul's letter? That's a simple, rough outline of where we're heading. Before we go any further with that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time and this space in which we can come together as your people and around your word, which is a revelation of yourself to us and a visible, tangible proof of your undeserved and yet clearly good and kind intentions to us. Thank you for wanting us to know what you are doing in this world and why. Thank you for making us a part of what you're doing. Thank you for not casting us off, as you might justly have done, because of our sinfulness. Thank you that instead you embraced us, you forgave us, you were and have remained so merciful and patient toward us. Thank you for the incredible privilege of not only knowing you, but even more deeply of being yours, your people, your children, your possession. Thank you for engraving your image upon us and within us and for being so committed to restoring it, tarnished though it has become. Thank you for these and so many other things. Please use this time for your glory and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans 2, verses 1 to 4. You could follow along in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there and follow along in your Bible. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, 
you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As I've already indicated, we're going to be dealing with three questions. And from the outset, I'd like us to consider the first two questions, really, together. Because they're pretty well bound up with one another. And you've already lost track of what those questions were. The first one was, what's Paul doing here? What's he trying to accomplish? And as we respond to that, we'll find ourselves answering the second question as well, which is, who is Paul addressing here? Who does he have in mind in this section of Romans? Now, one way to approach this, it seems to me, is uh, to take a step backward and remember how Paul started out this letter. Right out of the gates, after a few words of introduction, uh, Paul gives very clearly and very succinctly what we have called the thesis statement of the whole letter when he writes this. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So right out of the blocks, Paul shares with his readers his great confidence that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for Jews and Gentiles, which is to say, for the whole world, for anyone who will believe. That is the message that Paul has been proclaiming throughout his ministry, whether in person or through his letters, including this letter. And so if Paul is going to get that message across, if he wants that message to land, if he wants that arrow to strike its mark, however you want to think about it, Uh, He he needs to show, in the course of this letter, how all people, Jews and Gentiles, are in need of a gospel that will save them. Which is to say, Paul needs to show, and wants to show, that all people need a Savior. So Paul has given himself to that task ever since verse 18 of chapter 1. And he's not going to depart from that task until he gets to the end of chapter 3, which is uh, still somewhere in front of us, but as a kind of a preview of what Paul is eventually going to conclude in chapter 3. Hear these words from from that chapter. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That is the sweeping, sobering conclusion toward which Paul is actually taking us throughout this section. That's where we're going. And so as part of that journey then, what we've seen so far is Paul's addressing what appears to be humanity in general 
in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And in doing so, Paul has sought to show how all people, like everybody, is without excuse in God's eyes and are guilty of willfully suppressing the truth about God and of attempting to replace God in various ways. And because of this, uh, they have, we have with them, deservedly brought the wrath of God down upon ourselves. And one of the ways that this wrath has been shown, as we saw last week, has been through God's giving people over, that's the language he uses, giving people over to the consequences that flow from their rejection of him. And what that means is, God has loosened his grip, so to speak, on the restraints and the controls that in his providence he exercises and which keep the brokenness of humanity from descending into utter chaos. By doing that, by loosening his restraints, God is simply allowing the internal momentum of human rebellion to sort of go where it's going to go and express itself in all sorts of telling ways, in the rejection of creational patterns of human sexuality, and equally in various other sins and vices, such as those described in 1, 28-32. As we saw last week, if a person were to read carefully through the kind of things mentioned in chapter 1, verses 28-32, to 32, and if that person was honest with himself or herself, then it seems like no one could truly come through such a reading unscathed. I mean, no one could really come through that sort of self-evaluation without being indicted in a number of areas. It seems like that would be the case. And yet, it isn't always the case. You know, Paul has been preaching and pastoring long enough to know that he ought never be surprised at the human capacity for self-justification and for hypocrisy and just plain blindness. We have amazing capacities for that. And Paul knows that, and as sure as it might seem that no one could come through a reading of 1, 28, 32 unscathed without feeling indicted, nevertheless, some still did, some regularly did, wherever he ministered. You know, this isn't Paul's first time around. He's been preaching, he's writing in this letter, but he's been preaching this message long before he wrote it in this letter for a while now, and um, long enough to know how people typically would respond to it when he preached it. Long enough to know that even as he was enumerating the various sins of humanity in general, there would be some people in the room who instead of feeling indicted by what they heard and being broken by it, they would actually feel vindicated by it. In other words, Paul knew that even as he cataloged the various sins that he did in 128-32, there would be some people who would basically be applauding, almost uh, standing beside Paul, so to speak, looking down um, condescendingly, judgmentally, self-righteously on the pathetic creatures who might actually practice the sort of things that Paul was listing. Kind of in their heart of hearts, 
urging Paul on to go and get those people and really tell them about it and really put it to them. And they're kind of cheering him on as he's lining up all these people on the firing line. Paul knew from experience that there were people like this that would amazingly exempt themselves from what he was saying. And so because he knew that, and he'd seen that many times before, he anticipates that here in his letter to the Romans with what he writes in chapter 2, verse 1 and following. I mean, that's what he's doing in chapter 2. He is addressing the person or the group that's kind of standing there uh, exempting himself or herself or themselves, the person who still amazingly, yet truly, still thinks, as Paul goes to this list, that Paul's just talking about someone else, but not them, as he describes these sins of humanity. Which answers our first question, leads us right into the second one. Who is this person, or who are these persons? Who is it that Paul has in mind here? Some writers, a guy named Bruce, uh, feel that Paul is thinking here about non-Jewish persons who did not profess any particular religion, but who nevertheless were quite moral. And, uh, and, and these relatively moral people at least, felt themselves to be above the very things that Paul was mentioning in that list. As Bruce puts it, he gives an example. He says, what about a man like uh, Paul's illustrious contemporary Seneca, the Stoic moralist who tutored Nero? Seneca might have listened to Paul's indictment there, and he might have said to himself, yes, that is perfectly true of the great masses of mankind, and I concur in the judgment which you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do. Others feel that Paul is almost certainly uh, not addressing uh, non-Jewish Gentiles who are very moral, but they think he's simply addressing the Jewish people here. And even though there's no specific reference to the Jewish people until later on in the chapter around verse 17. So which is it? Uh, who does Paul have in view here? Well, another uh, writer named Murray I think is helpful, and he says this. He says, it may be that the apostle, while thinking particularly of Jews, that's where he's aiming, but he frames his discourse in terms that are more general, so as to strike not only at the Jew, but also at others who did not consider themselves to be in the degraded moral and religious condition delineated in the preceding verses. And in that event, there would be much more of a point to the general terms in which the address is drawn, for their more general character would not detract from the obvious relevance to the Jew. And at the same time, others who were worthy of the same rebuke would not be excluded. So Murray's view is that Paul is addressing the Jews here, but he does it in such a way as to also catch the attention of many non-Jewish moralistic people out there who might have felt that Paul's descriptions in 1, 28-32 didn't really apply to them very well. So you see what Paul's doing, right? He wants to show how all people are unrighteous and in need of the gospel and in need of a righteousness that only God himself can supply. And in trying to drive that 
point home in 128 to 32. Paul knows from his past and his own experiences that even though people ought not think this way, he knows that there are people who still hear what he says and dismiss it as not applying to them. And so he writes what he does in chapter 2 because he wants everyone to see and understand their great need. Even those who wrongly felt themselves to be morally superior as the Jews often did toward the Gentiles. And to this group, Paul has at least a couple things to say. The first thing Paul says to this group or category of people is, you have no excuse either. These ones I've just talked about have no excuse, but guess what? You have no excuse either. Because even though the person or a group of persons in view here may feel um, themselves to be morally superior to the people Paul's been describing, the truth is they're not superior at all. And the giveaway, says Paul, is seen in the very fact of their making judgments and looking down upon others who they regarded as morally inferior to themselves. Listen again to verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what's Paul talking about there? He's saying that in the act of passing judgment on another... You betray your own hand. You give yourself away as a practitioner of the very things that you're passing judgment upon here. You might ask, well, how so? Well, if you go back to Paul's list in 1, 28 to 32, admittedly, it's not an exhaustive list. We saw that before. It's representative, 21 different things. But you'll find various descriptions of sin, including these. Uh, Maliciousness, slander, gossip, heartlessness, and ruthlessness, for example. And what I think Paul's saying is that the person who is passing judgments, who thinks themselves to be morally superior, is criticizing and putting down, belittling others for their moral inferiority, that is, for being malicious and slanderous, or for being a gossip, or for being heartless and ruthless. The person who's making those kinds of assessments those kinds of judgments of other people, uh, is himself often doing the very things in the act of pronouncing that judgment. In other words, there's a certain hypocrisy built into the act of judging. Um, Because the person who acts as the judge of another can find himself, for example, talking about the ruthlessness of others, but he can do so in a very ruthless manner. Similarly, you can maliciously describe the maliciousness of others. You can slanderously decry the fact that someone else is a slanderer. And as a case in point, if you look at a way that the Gentiles were often spoken of or characterized by the Jewish people in Paul's day, you'll find that very language that very sort of attitude. You find that there was a certain maliciousness and heartlessness and ruthlessness to it. And of course, this sort of thing was not and is not confined to the attitudes of the Jews toward Gentiles in the first century. 
Uh, I'm sure it went the other way too. But it's a characteristic reality found within all people. One that's seen especially clearly every time any of us are in the act of condemning others or otherwise regarding ourselves as the possessors of some sort of superior moral position. One writer describes it this way. He says, Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient in our assessment of ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. So the first thing Paul says to the people in view here in chapter 2 is, you who would condemn others actually show yourselves to be practitioners of the very same things that you condemn. The second thing to see about those who are in view here in chapter 2 is not only that they, like those in 128-32, are also without excuse and not exempt from the judgment of God, but also they're in danger of presuming upon the kindness of God. Which is to say, they're in danger of misreading the kindness of God and the patience of God toward them. They're in danger of misreading it so that it serves some other purpose rather than the one for which it was intended, which is to lead them to repentance. Now this point in particular is one that causes uh, many uh, writers to feel that Paul clearly must have in view here the Jewish people, even in this early section of the chapter without explicitly mentioning it. Because in fact the Jews in Paul's day were very guilty, terribly guilty, of being terribly presumptuous with regard to the kindness that God had shown toward them and their people. One guy says uh, the Jews interpreted God's goodness toward them as a basis for or as a guarantee of their immunity from judgment or from the criteria by which others would be judged. In the Jewish person's mind, it was the Gentile, not them, it was the Gentile who needed repentance. What the apostle says is that the goodness of God, when properly assessed, leads to repentance. It's calculated to induce or produce repentance. At the end of the day, then, Paul's language here seems to suggest that the person in view here in chapter 2 doesn't act and isn't acting like he or she knows what the kindness of God is for or what the patience of God for, toward him is ultimately for. It's not, it's not for indulgence. It's not intended to produce smug self-assurance or further brazenness. It's designed, actually, to break us in all the right ways and for all the right reasons. Because, and you've heard me say this in the past, but I'll say it again because I think it always bears repeating. The thing that God most uses with us at the end of the day, He uses various means, but I think the thing that He most uses with us at the end of the day to change us, and to grow us and make us more like Himself. The thing that God uses to bring us to the right places in our hearts where we are attentive 
and ready and willing and prepared to submit to Him and to change, the thing that God uses is not harshness most of the time. Although He can, He does discipline His children sometimes severely. But I'm convinced that ultimately those realities notwithstanding, what is in view with Paul's words here is the effect and the result that God's kindness not only is intended to produce, but actually does produce in those that are His. Namely, repentance. Not merely remorse, not just intense but fleeting emotion, which is what remorse is about. Not that, but instead repentance. By which I mean a renewed, rekindled desire to change and to grow and to be different than you were before. And the thing that drives it, the engine room that drives the desire for and the fact of repentance ultimately is not the harshness of God, but it is His kindness. That is the thing that just slays us. It is the kindness of God and the mercy of God that gets to us. And it gets under our skin. And it affects us more deeply and more lastingly than anything else. I'm convinced of that. It is the kindness of God that eventually wears down all of our defenses and reaches behind our calloused hearts beyond our stubbornness and it gets us to the place where we want and we desperately want to turn and change and grow. And it gets us there not because God has finally beaten us into submission but because He He has loved us into submission. We find ourselves wanting to be more and more like Him. Again, not because we're terrified of Him and what He might do, although there's a place for that at times, but ultimately, the more lasting motivation for us in becoming like Him is not that we're terrified of Him, but because His love and His patience and His mercy has worn us down. And in the process, He has become beautiful to us and precious to us. And we find ourselves less and less capable or willing to go on breaking the heart of this one who has loved us so well and who continues to love us so well. And that is the kindness of God doing what only it can do to bring us to repentance. And it will do far more in the harshness of God ever does. Let's pray. Father, as we've already seen for a number of weeks in this section of Romans, you have every right to be harsh with us, to be ultimately harsh to hit the do-over button and yet you keep not doing that. You keep showing us 
more kindness than we could possibly deserve or imagine we could possibly hope for. And it's, it's, um, it is amazing, sometimes mystifying, but ultimately, Father, it is a beautiful thing. We thank you that for your way with us, the way you are with us, and how through that means you draw us to pursue you, not out of mere fear or respect, although we owe you all that, not out of mere gratitude even, although we are grateful, but out of fascination with you, out of, out of being drawn to you and the beauty of who you are and of your heart that causes us to pursue you and to want to be like you in ways that we are not yet like you, but you've promised we one day will be. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom in being that way and leading us in that way and knowing us better than we will ever know ourselves. Thank you for being patient with us and kind and even when you are harsh for showing us sometimes in the moment, sometimes much later how even the harshness is ultimately a kindness itself. Thank you for that, Father. Help us to be ambassadors of that truth. Um, to tell others about you in that way and your great heart in that way. And please use us as we do that to draw people to yourself. Help us to remind one another of these things when we forget, which is probably daily. Help us to build up one another and encourage one another with this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We will um, now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or the ministries through this church.